You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hello, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Jacob Goldstein, who is not only a co-host on the famous podcast, Planet Money, but also the author of this book, Money, The True Story of a Made-Up Thing. So I love the title, right? Because it emphasizes that, that money is something which involves the imagination. It's something that involves a fiction. And you describe your occupation in part as a storyteller. And, you know, money is all about storytelling. I recall hearing John Searle, the philosopher, once referred to money as a social reality, right, built on, on beliefs. And so, you know, you're coming from this from a background that's not economics, it's not finance, it's actually, you're, you're an English major. Do you think that having a background in English and, and fiction and storytelling gives you insight into money that the folks who are kind of swimming in the water don't see, the, the economists of the world, the finance folks of the world? I hope so. You know, there are lots of really smart people who know far more than I do about this sort of mathematical side of finance and economics. But there's a tremendous amount of sort of stories and ideas about how money works that are really about the human side and that are interesting, I think, I hope, both to people who sort of come from a more kind of rigorous quantitative background, but also to people who who haven't thought about money or have been kind of wary of it. I feel like there's a lot there. And you made your way into money through reporting at the Wall Street Journal, but you weren't originally covering kind of finance-related topics. How, how did you wind up over at Planet Money? So, yeah, I went to the Wall Street Journal in the like early 2000s. I was covering healthcare there. And as you said, I'd studied English, so I wasn't really like a finance guy, even though I was at the Journal. I wasn't at all. And uh, the financial crisis hit in 2008. And suddenly, like trillions of dollars in wealth sort of vanished, right? When you looked at market caps of, you know, big stock indexes and real estate prices, all this money seemed to sort of disappear, which was a little bit confounding to me. And I was out to dinner with my aunt one night in Manhattan. My aunt started life as a poet. In fact, is still kind of a poet, but she went, got an MBA at Wharton in the 80s and became a really successful businesswoman. It was sort of my like go-to smart person to talk to about money. And so I was asking her like all these trillions of dollars what happened to them? Where did they go? And she said, look, like money, all this stuff, money is fiction. Well, the, those trillions of dollars, they weren't really there in the first place. And that was like a big aha moment for me, right? Where, where money, this thing that I had sort of thought of as like this very quantitative thing, sort of like physics or something, actually started to seem much more humanistic, right? Much more like this thing that people had made up. Yeah. And then that got you to planet money. And did that, did you were thinking in the background of always writing a book or, or did the writing of the book come later? No, it came a lot later. You know, what happened by the time I got to planet money, it was 2010, right? So planet money is this show at NPR that launched right in the financial crisis. In fact, they did a big show about the housing market before the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy. They were covering mm -hmm. subprime mortgages and, and how they sort of drove a lot of the economy. By the time I got there, though, it was 2010, things had sort of calmed down a little. And we started doing these stories about money itself, right? Like, we did a show for This American Life, where the driving question was, what is money? The host of that show, Ira Glass, called it the most stoner question ever posed on the show, yeah. which I take as a sort of badge of honor. But they are like, 
it's a good stoner question, right? It's actually an interesting question. And you can get lots of really sort of robust historical answers to that question, which is pursuing that question for years and years is ultimately what led to the book. Well, I mean, I like this idea of a stoner question. I think maybe that should be the, the new title for my, my podcast because I like it because it really is about questioning a lot of the things that we sort of just take for granted. And I remember when I took my first macroeconomics class, you know, when I was like 16, I knew how to answer all the questions on the exam, but I really had no idea what they were talking about. And I'm not sure that they really knew what, what they were talking about, right? It's so easy to just take for granted the background reality, like things like money. Yeah. I was talking to an economist at the Fed a few weeks ago about monetary aggregates, you know, which is like counting up how much money is in the world, basically, which is a thing that used to be important and now nobody cares about anymore. But when you really get into monetary aggregates, like counting how many dollars, literally how many dollars are in the world, A, it's actually hard to know, hard to count it because what counts as money, basically. And then B, nobody really cares about it anymore, which is kind of weird, right? Like, in terms of macroeconomics, basically nobody cares about how much money is in the world anymore. And see, like when you try and follow flows of money, even with people whose job it is and say like, why did M1, whatever, a particular way of counting up money in the world, why did that go up last year? They have to sort of stop and think about it more than you would think. Like mm -hmm. it is more mysterious than one would think. Yeah. A big part of the book is a description of how things like well, in the later parts of the book about how things like money market funds assumed the role of money and later how commercial paper assumed the role of money. And really, it's almost like a feat of the imagination, right? It's a, it's a metaphorical feat, right? It's, it's something which the minute people start to think of it as, as money, it has profound implications for, you know, for economic policy. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the money market story is really interesting. And it is this case, and it's something we've seen for really thousands of years, where something becomes money without people really realizing it, right? We think of money as this very binary thing. Something's, you know, there's a dollar bill, there's not a dollar bill. But in fact, that's not how it works. And I mean, in terms of a story, the, the money market fund story is incredible because there were these two guys who were finance guys. And in the 70s, they invented just sitting in their office trying to come up with something to do, basically, a money market fund, because at the time... Uh, there were regulations that limited the interest that banks could give on checking accounts, right? And inflation was pretty high. And people were just like losing out on checking accounts. But things like treasury bills and jumbo savings accounts could pay more. So these guys basically, it's basically a kind of arbitrage, right? So you mm -hmm. put your money in this thing that feels a lot like a checking account, although it's not federally insured, and you get more interest than you get in a checking account. And over time, it becomes more and more like a checking account. They actually start letting you write checks on it at some point. And these things go wild. Money market funds become these huge, popular, you know, financial products. And then suddenly these guys have all this money people are putting in. And there's others. There's other funds springing up. And all these funds have all this money. And they have to turn around and invest it. They have to turn around and lend it out, right? Because they're basically doing what banks do, even though they're not banks. And so they need to find new markets, new borrowers. And money market funds end up driving cut to like the early 21st century, driving a lot of the, the finance bubble, right? A lot of the money that was going into like the subprime mortgage market was actually coming through, coming from money market funds, being loaned out to, you know, non-bank lenders, being loaned out to investment banks, which were not at that time, you know, regulated like commercial banks. And indeed, when Lehman Brothers goes bankrupt in September of 2008, 
sort of amazingly, this first money market fund that these two guys had invented by that point, what, 40-ish years, 35-ish years earlier, had loaned money to Lehman Brothers. They had bought Lehman Brothers commercial paper. And so suddenly they are, you know, holding paper from a bankrupt firm and there is a run on their money market mutual fund. They can't, you know, it's just a bank run, even though it's not really a bank. And people who had their money in the money market fund are technically investors, but really they thought their money in that money market fund was money in the bank. And then that turns into a run on the whole money market mutual fund system, just like trillions of dollars. And then the president, George W. Bush, within days, that same week that Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, says, okay, we, the federal government, are insuring all the money in money market mutual funds. And at that moment, when he does that, that becomes money, right? That's suddenly it's the same as a dollar in an insured, you know, FDIC insured checking account. And so that that is one, maybe the most recent story of something becoming money. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a strand in American history where where people are um, kind of suspicious of different types of money, suspicious of different ways of of creating money. And I think this came to the fore just recently when President Trump appointed someone who had a, a history of kind of gold buggery to the Fed. And uh, and I always found this amusing because people who are proponents he of tried. the gold standard, I should say, he tried. Yes, uh, but, that's right. But failed. Interestingly, one of the places that uh, Senate Republicans did not go along with President Trump were in, in his Fed appointments. And uh, sorry, go on. Yeah, well, what, what I always find surprising about people who are supporters of, of the gold standard is that they point to gold as being, you know, real money, whereas uh, bank created money is, is somehow fake money. But the, the value of gold is just as much a, a function of people's collective beliefs as the, the value of bank generated money. Yes. The thing about gold that makes it money is not the gold part, right? There's the metal sitting in the ground. That's not money. The shared belief is the money part. And one of the things that's striking to me about the gold standard is the difference between the sort of, say, popular imagination and economic consensus, economic experts. It's maybe, I mean, there's often a gap, but, you know, economists famously disagree about everything. They do not disagree about the gold standard, right? Like the gold standard was clearly a bad idea. It's clearly a bad way to run money. It essentially caused the Great Depression. And going off the gold standard was basically what started the climb out of the Great Depression in country after country. I mean, I do think people have a deep desire to to believe in some kind of natural money, right? I think that's where the gold standard thing comes from, as well as a wariness of the government. But there is no natural money, right? Like, you just, it's just not a thing. It's like wanting natural music or natural law. I mean, there isn't. It's just we can have one law or we can have a different law, but there's no law that comes from nature, despite what they thought in the Enlightenment. Sorry, I guess I'm getting into when I say natural law, that's a whole other debate that maybe I'm not I'm not an expert on that. Well, I'll be interested in the reception that you've gotten from different audiences. I found I my training was in financial history and uh, I found that you know, demand for an interest in financial history kind of goes in waves and it usually peaks whenever there's some kind of crisis. So right after the financial crisis, that's when everybody said, oh, wow, you know, bank runs, that's that's super interesting. We'd forgotten about that. And, you know, with the um, development of Bitcoin, all of a sudden people are starting to ask the question, right? You know, what what is money? And I start off my course on uh, blockchain with an entire lecture on, on the history of money. And I, I had a difficult time getting anybody interested in this topic, you know, a few decades, decades earlier. Are, are you finding a resonance with, with people? Are people, you know, more very interested in, in the topic of the history part of the history of money? I think so. I mean, you know, I, this book is really a series of stories, right? And there are 
some very just dramatic stories, it, you know, characters and like murderers and kings and as well as kind of intellectual revolutions, technological revolutions. So, you know, it's sort of everything, right? I mean, it's really a history of, of lots of kinds of change, of technological change and of social change. And money is like a lens for that. Yeah. And you actually cover quite a bit of uh, territory from China to Amsterdam to France. I mean, there's, there's quite a few uh, stories in there. Perhaps the most exciting one is that of, of John Law, who's the kind of character that I think a lot of people could <laughs> identify with as a huckster or, or entrepreneur or fabulist. You know, I think you, you said in another place that, that you hadn't been familiar with, with John Law until you started doing the program and, and reading for the book. Yeah, it's amazing, right? Like, it's such an extraordinary story. And like, you know, I, I knew a medium amount of history and had read a lot. And I had never heard of John Law, even after I'd been working at Planet Money for years. I mean, I feel like I should just mention briefly who he was, because then it's understandable, right? Like, so he he was born in the 1600s in Scotland and grew up and moved to London. It was like this man about town and was drinking and gambling and chasing women. And then he gets into this duel and he kills a guy and is convicted and sentenced to murder. And then he escapes from prison and flees to Europe. And it just so happens that this moment, this is now like late 1600s, early 1700s, is this moment when kind of modern financial capitalism is like just getting going in Western Europe. And he's traveling around Western Europe, seeing all these pieces of it. And he's a very smart guy, very good at math. And so he goes to Amsterdam, where they have the Dutch East India Company, which is basically the first multinational corporation with stock that everybody can trade in the first stock market. And in London, actually, right around the time he's convicted of murder, the Bank of England is created, which is like, you know, the sort of proto-central bank. And paper money itself is just getting going in England at that time and in Western Europe in general at that time. And so he sort of sees all these pieces, banks and paper money and stocks, and like has this vision of creating a financial economy, like, like one that has never existed before. And he's this very charismatic guy. And so he starts pitching it to these, you know, dukes and princes and whoever he can get an audience with. And he finally takes, finds a taker in France where the king is a little boy and the regent, this kind of hard living, partying duke of Orleans is, uh, is running France. And the regent just sets John Law up and John Law creates a trading company with a monopoly rights to France's North American territories, which is like half of North America along the Mississippi River, names it after the Duke of Orleans, right? Names the capital after the Duke of Orleans. That's how we get New Orleans. And then he starts France's first modern bank and prints France's first paper money. And he sells stock in his trading company. And of course, you can go to his bank and get the paper money and then go to the trading company and buy stock. And there is this incredible boom. And France's economy is really going well and coming along. And credit is easier to come by. Interest rates are lower. And then the stock market, I shouldn't say market, it's one stock. The price of this one stock starts going up and it goes up and up. And there's this incredible mania where people are flooding into Paris and clogging the streets to trade stocks. And they invent the word millionaire because so many people are getting so rich. And then, of course, you know, it overheats the sort of financial economy gets ahead of the real economy, as it is prone to do. And there's a crash and Law is chased out of, out of Paris by a mob. And he goes and lives the rest of his days in Venice, gambling and collecting art. And it's like this amazing story with so much of like financial origins and like basic ideas about sort of power and monetary dynamics. And I had never heard it, even after working at Planet Money. I mean, I don't know, when did you come across it? Well, my, my training is in French history. So I, I, ah. I came across it a little bit <laughs> earlier than you maybe. But I love the story simply 
you know, for one reason, it's it's a classic example of a bubble, right? I mean, you have this massive expansion and then you have the contraction and, you know, we, we've had plenty of bubbles since in lots of different domains. And one of the things I learned from your book was that the term self-fulfilling prophecy was was coined as a way of explaining uh, bank runs, which are like bubbles, this thing which is built on beliefs and, and the collapse in, in beliefs. And so I think a lot of people, when they think of expansions and contractions, they think of them as being driven by forces in, in the real economy. But I think there's this huge element around beliefs. And if, if people believe that the um, economy is going to do well, it's it's more likely to do well, at least in the short run. And, and the reverse is true. And, you know, Keynes, of course, talks about this and others talk about it, but it really is about stories and the stories that people believe. Yeah. Animal spirits. Animal spirits is a good, it's the Keynesian phrase that's really resonant. Yeah. Yeah. And you see it a lot of places. I mean, recently, you know, inflation is a really interesting place where expectations are incredibly powerful. And, you know, one of the great semi-mysteries of the past decade is why has inflation been so low, right? I mean, if you go back a year before the pandemic, we were at below 4% unemployment. We had very high deficits driven by tax cuts. Like, this is an incredibly inflationary kind of environment, right? This is where you would expect to see overheating. Oh, and interest rates were super low, too. And yet you didn't see overheating, right? Like, you, inflation stayed very low. And there are different explanations. I don't think anybody really understands what's going on with inflation, why it's been so low. But one of the explanations, I mean... There's different explanations, globalization, technological change, probably part of it, declining, you know, union power lowers workers' bargaining power is probably part of it. But a big part of it is inflation expectations, right? Like, and it was conversely a big driver of inflation going up in the like late 70s. If you expect prices to go up, you know, you're going to pull forward your consumption, buy stuff now, you're going to, in long-term contracts, you're going to have a big, you know, inflationary bumps built in. And so there is clearly an incredible, incredible amount of expectation, of belief that fuels what actually happens in the world with inflation. Right now, that's the one that really feels like salient and powerful to me. Yeah, I think it was in the 90s when when that was sort of the, the death knell of the pure monetarist uh, approach to inflation, where in Latin America, a whole generation of leaders came in to constrain the growth of money supply and inflation wouldn't go away. And they really had to figure out a way to you know, put a break in the inflationary expectations that people had developed over many decades. You also talk about money illusion, which... Oh yeah, the money illusion. Isn't that such a good phrase? That is good. Good branding. So that's, yeah, that's Irving Fisher came up with the money illusion. Irving Fisher is like criminally underrated. He's this economist from the first uh, half of the 20th century, probably the most famous American econ uh, economist of that period. And like, there's one thing he's remembered for, and that is that in the fall of 1929, he was this big believer in progress and technology. And in the fall of 1929, you know the line, he gave the speech and he said, the stock market is on a permanently high plateau. And that was like, I don't know, a month or so before the terrible crash of 1929. So it's like, ha ha, Mr. Smart Economist doesn't know about the stock market. But he was a great economist. And this idea he had that called the money illusion came from his insight that people are confused by inflation and deflation. You know, this was during the gold standard. And during the gold standard, you had both periods of significant inflation and periods of significant deflation, you know, because you couldn't get more money, basically. The money supply was not that elastic. And so if the economy is growing and the money supply is not, you had deflation. And he realized that people could just get 
screwed or confused or both by these fluctuations. And he wanted, he had, he was like, he had like this mission. He was a real believer in educating people and in, in getting them to think about money differently. I mean, what economists would say, you know, understanding the difference between real and nominal dollars, right? He had a company, he started a company, he had this like some kind of filing system and he started a company and to sort of further his beliefs, he did this thing at the company where when there was inflation, he would give people more pay, not as a raise, but he would just say like, look, this is just a cost of living adjustment, right? And people were like, oh, great, great. Thanks, Dr. Fisher. And then when there was deflation, he would give people less money. But he was like, look, this isn't a pay cut. This is just, you know, the same amount of real dollars. And people were furious. Like his employees were like, why are you giving me a pay cut? He was like, no, it's not actually a pay cut. And from that experience, he realized that people just aren't going to get it. Like people are just going to be subject to the money illusion. And so his ultimate goal was, ended up being to get rid of the gold standard, basically. Like his his thing was like, look, the gold standard is like a dollar gets you the same amount of gold every year, but who cares how much gold you can get for your dollar? What you want is like the same amount of bread and milk and, you know, housing every year for a dollar. And, you know, that's what we evolved to. I mean, obviously we have some inflation now, but it's pretty low and it's way more stable than it was, you know, in the first part of the 20th century. Yeah, I think a, a good understanding of semiotics helps with understanding macroeconomics, right? Another great story that you mentioned is uh, that of Isaac Lemaire. Uh, Isaac was sort of a notorious, famous early shorter, and I think he was about as popular as some of the shortest shorters are right now in the current markets. Can you talk a little bit about his story? Yeah, so that's back to the the Dutch East India Company. Well, you know that John Law saw. Lemaire was even earlier. The Dutch East India Company started in the early part of the 1600s, right around 1600, and was basically, you know, there were joint stock companies, but there was a provision in the books of the Dutch East India Company that said, basically, that made it easier for people to trade the stock. And initially, it meant like you go into the office and like with somebody else and like they actually write in the ledger book, okay, you're exchanging it. And then that evolved into a stock market. And Lemaire, I believe he was on the board of directors of the of the Dutch East India Company. He was like a prominent person and he was, you know, along, right? He was involved. He was involved in the company. And then he got forced out in some way. There was some dispute over like kind of like an expense report. There was something. He got forced out and he was bitter. And so he decides he's he's gonna short, he's gonna short this company. He does it with with futures contracts, which are actually quite old. People use futures contracts for for agricultural reasons. You know, farmers want to be able to lock in or get their money now for the so they can whatever pay for the seeds and right so futures contracts are very, very old financial instruments. So people were trading futures contracts on um, Dutch East India Company stock. And he decides he's going to enter into a bunch of futures contracts that are that are essentially a short bet. So he'll make a lot of money if the stock goes down and he'll lose money if the stock goes up. Everybody hates this, right? Because then as now, everybody's, everybody's rooting for the stock price to go up and they're happy when it goes up and they're sad when it goes down. And they end up going after Lemaire. And, you know, they talk about how all these widows and orphans depend on their on their East India company stock and how his rumors are driving the stock down. It's the exact same thing, you know, today. Although weirdly, that GameStop story was like, no, it was the same story. Everybody was still complaining about the shorts, right? But it's not clear that Lemaire was was lying, right? And in fact, you know, you want price discovery in the stock market. You want people to have an incentive to go figure out what's going on with a stock, whether it's the Dutch East India Company or GameStop or any other company, right? And so allowing people to make bets where they profit when the price of a stock goes down 
is helpful. Like it gives people an incentive to go find fraud, right? It gives people an incentive and, and they have. There are lots of instances where shorts go investigate companies and they say this company isn't doing what it says it is. They say its books don't add up. And that is a socially useful function, despite the fact that it makes people angry. Yeah, I, I have trouble picking among all the different stories. I mean, another one that I, I is one of my favorites is Nicholas Biddle, who is another American, someone in financial history. I guess uh. financial history is not as well known as political history and military history, but he was another seminal person in American history. Yeah. I mean, you would think he would at least get some play because A, Maybe the thing put him he was involved bill. in was called the bank war, right? The bank war. That sounds good. I think he would have been a better person than Andrew Jackson for the, for the $20 bill. Absolutely. Right. And he went to war, you know, metaphorical war against Jackson uh, because Jackson, President Andrew Jackson, hated paper money and hated banks. He thought paper money, he felt about paper money the way people today feel about, you know, credit default swaps or something. He thought it was some weird bank swindle and the only real money was gold and silver. So it's really ironic that he is on, you know, the most familiar, the $20 bill that is fiat money. Not for long. not for long. And like, it's funny, I, I actually briefly tried to figure out how he got onto the $20 bill. And I couldn't get to the bottom of it. I, maybe someday I'll try and go, you know, root around in the basement of the Fed and figure it out because who would put him on it? No. So so there was there was the story about Biddle is America had a sort of proto central bank called uh, the Second Bank of the United States. In the 1820s, Biddle became the president of it. And America was really, I don't know, schizophrenic sort of about having this big national proto-central bank. We'd had one that Hamilton had helped create and then it expired. You know, companies at the time had finite lives. They had these 20-year charters. So the first bank of the U.S. was there and then it expired. And then we had to fight the War of 1812 without a central bank. And it was really hard for the government just to like move money around the country. So we made another central bank, the second bank of the U.S. And that's what Biddle ran. And it was really powerful. It was like the biggest company in the country. It was the only bank that existed, you know, in more than one state. The federal government kept its deposits in the bank. It had a special charter from Congress. So it was this weird, it was a private bank for profit, right? So it was this weird kind of public-private monopoly. And it was like the epitome of like Wall Street elites plus Washington elites, right? So as this sort of Western populist, Jackson hated everything about the Bank of the U.S. and wound up killing it wound up vetoing the bill that would have extended the charter. And as a result, the U.S. went, uh, what, 80 years or so without a central bank, which is really amazing. I mean, there was this moment not long after Jackson kills the bank when there's literally thousands of different kinds of paper money in America because every state bank is essentially printing its own paper money. Well, and I think that that free banking period followed was in part the inspiration for a lot of the cryptocurrency kind of people today who are trying to introduce lots of different competing currencies. I mean, of course, the only difference is that all of those banks were required to buy government bonds to to pack up the currencies. But I think that people look back on that period, sort of free market money people look back on that kind of nostalgically because there was some competition, at least, uh, for money. That's true. And, and that idea, I mean, that phrase free market money is a good one. And there's even like a a court ruling from the era where this bank said, like, the people have demanded a free market in money, just like there's a free market in, you know, cotton and wheat. And so it was like a semi-private money, although, as you say, they were backed by, gov- by government bonds. And they also, I mean, 
This was the gold and silver standard, basically. It was bimetal then. So banks had to redeem their paper money for gold or silver on demand. But it is interesting precedent. And I mean, it's also the case that, you know, the sort of for a long time, the standard view of free banking was what a nightmare, all these shady banks printing paper money and then going bust. But there was this kind of wave of revisionist history starting in the 70s, I think not coincidentally around the time that free market ideas were sort of ascendant, at least among economists, uh, no, more generally, right, more generally by the 80s, where they went back and were took a more analytical approach to the free banking era. And they found that it wasn't that bad. Like, clearly, it's inconvenient at some margin. And there are these stories of travelers that are absurd, you know, having to change money again and again. But when they looked at sort of how much did people lose when banks went bust? How much did they lose changing money? It was like, you know, kind of in the same ballpark as like paying ATM fees when you're using an ATM that's, you know, not your bank. Like not terrible, basically functional. And it made credit more easy, arguably, right? Like actually Galbraith has a surprisingly fun book on the history of money. And he talks about this idea that, you know, you could just open up a bank in some new frontier town and then farmers would roll into the town and the bank would give you some money and you could set up shop. And if the bank went bust, everybody would kind of pack up the wagons. And it was this sort of uh, frontier mentality that was maybe helpful in having a kind of loose credit. I think right now we're we're at a kind of a turning point in the history of money with the invention of, of cryptocurrencies. And so, you know, when you look at, say, Bitcoin and the wild gyrations that's that's happening right now in the price of, of Bitcoin, I think it really illuminates the idea that the the value of this pseudo money is is almost entirely built on the beliefs of the people who are using it either for a store of money or as a medium of exchange. Have you been following closely the developments in in the cryptocurrency world? Yeah, pretty closely. I mean, you know, I'll tell you, well, a few things. Like one, so the story I tell in the book is the origin story of Bitcoin, basically, which is like a 20-ish year-long story, you know, of this series of, they're basically techno-libertarians. Like they're really smart people who understand cryptography and are really into technology and to a significant degree are, are quite libertarian, right? And so what they want essentially is digital cash, which is a really hard technological problem to solve. And in this series of technological breakthroughs, they solve it, right? Like the Bitcoin white paper didn't come out of nowhere. It's sort of built on decades of clever breakthroughs and it puts them together in a clever way and adds, adds a little more and is this really elegant technological solution to this problem people have been working on for a long time. One of the things that's interesting to me, I mean, that's uh, what, 12 and a half years ago now? It was Halloween 2008 when the white paper came out. Not coincidentally, right in the middle of the financial crisis. And then I believe it was early 2009 when the, the Genesis block, that first block of Bitcoin was, was created, was mined. So it's a long time in technology terms. You know, it's like as long as we've had iPhones about, iPhones maybe a year older. And if you think of how ubiquitous the iPhone has become, it's interesting to some extent how the price of Bitcoin has gone up a lot. The amount of money people are willing to exchange for it has gone up a lot. But the people don't really use it to buy stuff. Right. I mean, I guess like ransomers use it. If they hack your computer, they make you give them Bitcoin. That That's like actual exchange, right? Medium of exchange. But in general, you would think either people would use it more or it would be worth less by this point. That's that's a surprising combination to me. I don't know. Do you have a view? Do you have like insight into that? Yeah. I mean, if you take, say, a transaction value of money approach to, to Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin should probably not have a whole heck of a lot of value because it's not being used as a transaction medium, right? So I, I think it's really being thought of 
primarily as as a store of value, kind of like gold. You know, for obvious if there's some obvious difficulties associated with using Bitcoin for transactions, but it's it's clear that the 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 belief in its future value as a store of value is is what's driving the beliefs about its current value. And do you feel like the so you feel like the store of value idea is not ultimately resting on some notion that like someday it will be a medium of exchange, someday it will be a thing people use to buy stuff, and when that day happens, then it will be valuable as a result. You don't think it's that. You just think it's like, well, it's valuable because it's valuable and it'll keep being valuable because it's been valuable. Yeah, I, I think it's hard to see Bitcoin being used as a transaction medium at any point in in time. There's just it's just too too clunky. There's there's too so many slow. better too, alternatives. Too few transactions per second. The transaction uh, rate is too low. Yeah, right. But the idea of digital cash, it, you you describe a couple in the book. You talk about how you know paper money's vanishing. I mean, it's it's kind of surprising how long it's taken. I think coronavirus has probably accelerated a little bit. I find myself scrounging around trying to figure out where I can find some paper cash. Right. Unfortunately, when I encounter homeless people, it's I no longer have anything in my pocket to to share. And yet, we still see lots of hundred dollar bills circulating all around the world. I think you said it was five thousand dollars per per American in liquid cash circulating around the world somewhere. Something like that. Certainly thousands. Yeah, thousands of dollars maybe four, maybe it's five now, for every man, woman, and child in America, just in hundreds. And in fact, even over the past year, the amount of paper money in circulation grew significantly. So there is this weird uh, divergence where it feels like we use cash less and less. Indeed, we do, most of us. And yet there is more and more cash, which is kind of fun. I mean, I think the two things pretty clearly with cash. A, I mean, it's mostly hundreds. Certainly in terms of value, it's mostly hundreds. And hundreds are one of the most just even numerous bills. Like, I think there's more hundreds than ones, last I checked anyway. So what, why does everybody want hundreds? Well, outside the U.S., it's useful as a store of value. If you live in a country where the banking system is unsound or where the currency is unsound, hundreds are, are good. And then they're great for crime, right? Like, they're, they're good. The, the reason people wanted to invent digital currency to a significant degree was so that they could do what people have done for a long time with paper money, which is move it around without anybody knowing about it, right? So whether the crime is just a tax evasion or like moving drug money, paper money is really good. In fact, one of the things that happened after the book came out, I was sorry to miss it, just in the pandemic, as as California was going into lockdown, all the stores in Los Angeles closed. And it turns out there was this group of of wholesalers in downtown LA that were essential for drug dealers laundering their money to get it out of the States and into Mexico. And when those stores closed, the drug dealers had this kind of great problem, which was all these $100 bills and they didn't know what to do with them. And there was this series of DEA raids in the spring last year, late spring, where they seized millions and millions of dollars just because the drug dealers suddenly couldn't launder them. So that was like a fun reminder. Hundreds, criminals love them. Yeah, I think the U.S. has really become kind of the the goldsmith to the world, really. And we are able to enjoy the fruits of the profits from that money manufacturing process because we all use dollars in our everyday life. No, it's amazing. Literally, we we sell pieces of paper to people for $100. Like, it's a good business. And and I mean, frankly, I mean, less sort of glibly beyond cash itself, the fact that the dollar, you know, is the reserve currency for the world is the money everybody wants. It means... Everybody wants to buy our treasury bonds, right? Everybody wants dollars, essentially. And so that is like this sort of tailwind that we have for the economy kind of all the time. And it doesn't seem imminent like anybody's going to want anything else. I mean, they're not going to want euros anytime soon, I don't think. And the other obvious one would be the yuan, right? The Chinese currency, the renminbi. But 
China has, you know, pretty significant capital controls that make it hard to move money freely in and out of China. And that is, you're not going to be able to have like a global reserve currency that you don't let, you know, float and, and don't let people move money in and out. So for now, it seems like the dollar is pretty well established. Right. So at one point in your book, you, you, you talk, and I fundamentally agree with what you said, which is that gives money its value is that you can pay your taxes with the money. But it seems like the, the modern monetary theory folks that you discuss towards the end of your book, they embrace a view of money that is, that is completely divorced from, from that notion that there's a limit on how much money you can, you can create. Did you find wandering into the world of the mon- modern monetary theory an interesting experience? Do you see those folks as, as fabulists in the same vein as some of the other, you know, cy- cypher punks and, and others, or, or do you yeah, see them I as mean, being more uh, reasonable? Well, I guess it depends on who and, you know, what exactly the claim is. You know, I think there's like a, the fundamental constraint for uh, money, once you go off the gold standard, and if you're borrowing in your own currency, is inflation, right? The thing we ultimately should care about, the thing that limits how much the government can spend without borrowing or taxing is inflation. And this sort of smart version of modern monetary theory says that, right? It doesn't say we can spend as much money as we want or anything like that. It says the thing we should worry about is inflation. And so, I don't know, I'm not like a modern monetary theory person. I don't, you know, espouse that. But like that, that piece of it seems true. And I mean, to go back to the Thing we were talking about a little while ago, this idea that inflation has been strikingly low for the past decade. I think that's part of what has driven the popularity of modern monetary theory, right? I think if we were in a world like we were, oh, 40 years ago, where inflation is 7%, and when the government tries to borrow more, interest rates go up even more, people would look at the modern monetary theory and say, like, what are you even talking about? Obviously, money is scarce, and the more the government borrows, the more my interest rates are going to go up. But you know, I, I guess I don't buy monetary theory completely, but it does seem true at this point that like when the government borrows more money, interest rates don't go up, which is kind of weird. And like under the sort of standard non-MMT view shouldn't really happen. So I think it's timely, even though I don't agree with all of it, I guess, ultimately. So you make a couple other fun detours, I think, in the book. You, know, you talk about the Luddites, which I enjoyed. And then you talked to, about the history of light. And I think this was artificial light. And I think this was drawn from an episode in Planning Money. And it's really a phenomenal story. Maybe you can repeat that story. But, but I think in terms of the, the relevance of the story, I'd, I'd love to hear your insight on the extent to which you believe the history of, of money is a similar story of, of invention, innovation, and productivity. Or is it more a series of the more things change, the, the more they stay the same? Good. Okay. So let me tell the story and then we can talk about that last part. So the, I'll tell it short, but there is an economist named Bill Nordhaus. He's now a Nobel laureate, but when he was a young economist, he had this idea. And the idea was to track basically productivity growth over uh, a very long period of time by looking at the history of artificial light, as you said. And, you know, productivity growth is this thing that like sounds kind of boring, but is really the the big idea of economics, like it's sort of the whole game, right? The only way everybody's can get richer over time, the only way everybody can have more money over time is by productivity growth. And indeed, everybody can have more money over time, which doesn't feel true, right? I think people intuitively feel like the world is a zero-sum game. They feel like if somebody else is getting more, somebody is getting less, right? And if somebody's winning, somebody's losing. But that is not true. Like the good news of economics, the good news of productivity growth is that 
if you figure out ways that the same amount of work can get you more stuff, everybody can have more. So Nordhaus looks at the history of light, and he actually goes all the way back to ancient Babylon and gets like wage data and like buys an ancient oil lamp and does math and, you know, borrows a light meter from a janitor at Yale where he's a professor and figures out that in ancient Babylon, if a typical worker worked all day, they could spend all of their wages to light up a room with one of these, you know, a few old oil lamps and they could buy 10 minutes. I was trying to imagine how much it would cost to buy all that sesame oil. Even today, that would be pretty expensive. Well, especially in ancient Babylon. If if you think it's expensive today, imagine if you were a laborer in ancient Babylon. So they could spend a day's wages bought them 10 minutes of light. A whole day's wages, 10 minutes of light. And then he tracks it all through time. And, you know, what happens, the the short version of economic history is not much happens for all of time until about 1800, right? Until the Industrial Revolution. And so by 1800, thousands of years later, using whale oil, sorry, whales, at that point, a day's wages buys you about an hour of light. So that's like a 6x gain. Okay, but thousands of years to get a 6x gain is not great. But now this is when, you know, this is like the startup curve, right? The the hockey stick takes off in 1800 when we go from a world of very, very limited change to a world of constant change and constant productivity gains that we're still in. And so you see from 1800 to 1850, you get like five hours of light for a day's labor. So that's okay, a lot better, you know, about the same amount of gain in 50 years as you had in thousands before. And then, you know, Thomas Edison in the 20th century and productivity gains and cheaper and cheaper so that by the late 20th century, when he's doing uh, this work, what is it? I don't have it in front of me. It's extraordinary. The amount of light a typical worker can buy by the end of the 20th century is not like a hundred or a thousand hours. It's like 10,000 hours, right? Like light has become mm-hmm. almost free by the end of the California, century. it's a little more expensive. Just saying. California, we got... (laughs) But now you have LEDs, right? So even cheaper, even cheaper now than when Nordhaus did the study 20 years ago. And like, it is really profound. Like the material gains are just gigantic. And, you know, we forget that for many reasons, I think. Part of it is, A, there have obviously been costs to industrialization, right? Climate change being, I think, the, the biggest and the worst right now. Also, because we see, you know, wage stagnation and inequality, and we sort of stop believing in this idea that the pie can get bigger for everybody, but it is still true. And it's, you know, true with food, it's true with light, it's true with clothes. Like, almost everybody is materially better off than their, say, grandparents or great-grandparents were. So, like, that's the light story. So, now, is money the same? I mean, it feels less true with money, right? Like there are definitely technological innovations. I think it was Paul Volcker who famously said a few years ago, the last useful financial innovation was the ATM machine, where he was sort of, you know, scorning uh, the financialization that occurred in the early 20th century. I mean, I'm pro-money. I'm pro-finance. It, you know, it's a, it's a different kind of market. So it's, it feels less obviously sort of constantly innovating. I don't know. What do you think? I think, you know, people in the profession like to overestimate maybe this, the, the pace of change. I mean, I think there has been tremendous Im- improvement. I remember when I was in, in college, I, I used to go to this bar and the, the owner of the bar told me how he got started. And he said he went to a, a loan shark and got the money to start the bar and the guy charged 40% a week. And, and I think that, you know, there are large parts of the world where that that's the reality. But, you know, we've moved to a place where now with all of these, you know, fintech startups, a lot of whom that are based out of Silicon Valley, the, the cost of, of credit, you can pretty much 
convert anything into money, right? You can convert your receivables into money almost instantly. You can write checks on your house. You can write checks on your inventory. You can, you know, you can obtain finance at incredibly low rates with very little other than a, a wing and a prayer as a promise. And so, so I think a lot of people would tend to see this as, as radical innovation. I think theoretically it's, it's just a continuation of, of things that we've seen in the past. And, and certainly in 06, 07, we exaggerated the quality of the innovation that we were experiencing and we were in for a bit of a rude awakening. And so hopefully the fintech innovations we're experiencing now will not, will not result in a similar, similar hangover. Yeah, it's tricky, right? I mean, like debt, debt is tricky. Like fundamentally, it's useful. I'm glad I was able to get a mortgage to buy this apartment, you know, it would have taken me a long time to save the money. <laughs> So, like, I appreciate that. I think a lot of people underrate debt, frankly. I think the sort of conventional view that just debt is fundamentally bad is not quite right. So, I don't know. And I mean, clearly, well, banking is tricky, right? Because banking is this public-private sort of weird partnership, and banks aren't really in the free market. And so, watching fintech come in and, like, what can fintech do without being a bank? Like, that's an interesting kind of complicated set of questions. Certainly, like, disintermediation can be useful. Making things cheaper can be useful. Getting financial services to people who don't have them, that's a big one, right? So, like, there's still a lot of useful things to do. So, where do you think the next source of instability will be? You know, we all thought that we'd had the bank run situation solved when we created deposit insurance and we had a fairly tightly regulated banking system. And then we were in for a bit of a rude awakening when we discovered that investment banks were, were also banks and that commercial paper was like deposits, but on a really large scale. And so then we kind of cleaned that mess up a little bit and converted them all into regulated financial institutions. And now we, we, we think that we don't have to worry about financial instability again. But if anything can be converted into, into money at the, at the push of a button, I think there may be some new sources of instability as everyone tries to escape from underneath the, the regulatory infrastructure. Do you, do you see any kind of potential weak spots on the horizon? I mean, there's a few ways to think about it, right? Like the just debt levels are extraordinary, right? Corporate debt, I mean, government debt is high. That is less, that seems less worrisome. But like corporate debt is extraordinarily high. I haven't looked in on on spreads lately, but you know, the spreads between high risk debt and safe debt were quite small, which is a classic sign of like the credit boom going on and on. So like, that's a sort of classic thing that can make an economic downturn worse, although not necessarily a financial crisis, right? The, the financial crisis classically comes from runnable debt, right? So is there somebody out there besides money market mutual funds, which we know about, who is basically, you know, taking something like deposits, letting people, well, borrowing short and lending long, right? Like the classic bank-like behavior where people come and ask for their money back and then the whoever, the fintech, the intermediator says, oh, sorry, I don't have your money. Like that's the thing, right? That is the financial crisis moment. And so I don't know what the next sort of financial intermediator creating some money-like deposit, I don't know who that is. Like, do you know? You might have a better window into that than me. That's the mechanism though. Yeah. Well, we're certainly all on, on the lookout. You know, I think some innovations right now are happening in, in the area of kind of making your, your human capital a little more liquid through these income sharing agreements. I think you, you may uh -huh. have 
encountered these. I think there's some really exciting and interesting, but also potentially dangerous things happening in that space. We'll have to stay tuned. Yeah. Well, I mean, that one is more like selling equity in yourself, right? Income sharing is in a way an alternative to debt, right? I mean, to me, Mm -hmm. the fun way to think about that is like, well, if you're a company, you can either borrow money or you can sell equity, you know, and promise to share your profits in the future. If you're a person, Typically, you can only do debt. You can't sell equity in yourself. But now the income sharing agreement is this basic idea that like, you know, the coding boot camp will let you go to their school for free and you give them a chunk of your pay. And that does seem to like align incentives nicely, right? Then the coding boot camp really wants you to get a good job and make a lot of money so that they can get some money. Like that part seems good. Yeah, for sure. If, if in, in fact, it converts into some kind of debt instrument that, you know, I think it'll be different. But listen, Jacob, this has been fantastic. I enjoyed talking to you. I always love it when people are sitting at kind of the mind face between journalism and academia, you know, mining academia for, for interesting insights to, to promote through journalistic channels, but then simultaneously providing lots of food for thought for the academic folks. And I think coming in from your perspective is really creates a lot of little trigger points for, for us to, to start thinking about. So thanks so much for joining me, Jacob. And don't forget everybody. Oh, it's really fun. Thanks for having me. Check out this book, Money, True Story of a Made-Up Thing. And also, tune into Planet Money. It's always fun. It's always enjoyable. See you later, Jacob. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.